help my DTC grow. Strategies and quick wins that build up 8-figure DTC brands. How can you be unique and stand out from other D2C brands? Jason Greenwood is a highly respected e-commerce consultant and the founder of Greenwood Consulting, a leading agency specializing in digital strategy and brand development. With over a decade of experience, he has worked with numerous brands, helping them achieve remarkable success in the competitive e-commerce landscape. Jason's expertise lies in empowering brands to navigate the complexities of the digital world and unleash their full potential. You will get the answers to the following questions. How can brands achieve sustainable growth and create an outstanding online experience? How do you balance unique marketing strategies with best practices to drive growth in the ever-changing e-commerce landscape? What differentiates a stable brand that struggles to scale from a brand with the potential for rapid growth? And of course, I'm here to help your DTC brand grow, so I ask all my favorite questions at the end. Books to read, mistakes to avoid, quick growth tips, and tools to use. Now, let's get ready! Who can provide better advice for brands, agencies, or other brands? (laughs) How about if I give you a third option? Consultants. Maybe that's a little bit of a self-serving answer, yeah. but look, I, I think I think what's great is that everybody has a unique stack of skills, experiences, and perspectives, and I think that all three of those can provide really helpful advice to brands. Uh, you know, when I've gone to conferences, uh, oftentimes the brands that get a chance to speak to other brands and see what's working, see what's not working, see what tech stack is working for them, see what tech stack is not working for them, you know, sharing the challenges that they're facing, sharing the way that they're overcoming those challenges. Um, you know, I think brands speaking to other brands, particularly ones that are of similar scale and size to what they are and operating in similar markets. I think that that kind of advice and knowledge sharing is invaluable. And the brands that are more willing to be open about their experiences are the ones that actually benefit from those types of conversations. You know, a lot of a lot of brands try to keep the play their cards close to their chest. They don't like opening their kimono. They kind of think of everything they do as, as secret sauce. But the reality is, is that there's nothing really new under the sun. Um, and the reality is, is that we can all learn from each other. We can all benefit from each other. Now, when it comes to, to agencies, agencies, for the most part, are structured in such a way. And I've worked, you know, I've run agencies and I've worked with agencies for many years. And, and most agencies are structured in such a way, particularly development agencies, that they're structured to be able to capture the requirements of a brand. So they're, when they do discovery, they're there to document uh, a brand's requirements and, and what they want to achieve and, and help them find the best technical and operational strategy to get them there. Now, the challenge with that is that a lot of brands don't know what they don't know. And so where somebody like me as a consultant or other consultants in the space can really come in handy in addition to the services of an agency is helping a brand define their requirements in the first place. So where agencies capture requirements and then help deliver against them, consultants can help a brand even understand what their requirements should be. When I go in and I start consulting with with brands, usually I'll start with a look at their data. So I'll look at their product data, I'll look at their customer data, and that will tell me usually within within 30 minutes of, of starting to engage with a brand, I can tell them where their pain points are. I can help them understand their challenges just by looking at their data. So I, I think that we all have a part to play. And particularly from a content perspective, I think that a lot of people 
shy away from creating content. Maybe they're not comfortable on video or maybe they're not comfortable on audio or maybe they're not comfortable writing. But really, I think that everybody has value to bring based on their unique lens that they see the industry through. And I think that everybody has some value to add and that I I think people just need to overcome their fears. I think that practice makes perfect. And the reality is when you first start in creating content, you don't have an audience. And so nobody's going to see your content anyway. So why, why not practice? And as you get better in terms of the way that you create content and put it out into the world, your audience will grow alongside that improvement. And so by the time you actually have a decent audience listening to you, you're going to be very good at putting out content. You're going to be very good at articulating your thoughts and your experiences. So I think that there's, there's no downsides to people putting their thoughts out into the world. Yeah, you said they have to find their unique voice. But how can they figure out their unique way of articulating this voice? I think the only way to do it is to start doing it. And like for me, when I first started out six, seven, God, must be eight years ago now, putting out content on a regular basis, I didn't know exactly how I wanted to speak to the world. I didn't know exactly what I, I didn't have some grand plan. You know, I wasn't already a consultant. So it wasn't like I was out there trying to generate business from my content or monetize my audience. So I just start, started creating. I, I started with video. Then I started doing audio. I started doing long form written content, short uh, written content. Uh, and I really started slicing and dicing that content and putting it out across multiple different channels with a heavy, heavy focus on LinkedIn. I've always focused heavily on LinkedIn right from day one because I found that because of the way in which I, I speak and the type of content and topics that I speak about, I, I find that that type of content resonates most with business people. And so I'm not going to be some expert dancer on TikTok. I'm not going to follow the latest trend on, on Instagram. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be that kind of guy. And so because my content, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily drier. I try to, I try to keep it entertaining. I try to keep it fun. I try to keep it engaging. But compared to a dancer on TikTok, for example, or a singer on TikTok, my content would be considered dry. Therefore, you know, you have to make sure that you're finding a place where you can distribute content where it's actually going to have an impact, where it's actually going to resonate with, with the audience. And I just found so far that LinkedIn is, is that place for me. Narrowing down the audience is it's good. And uh, if, if nobody cares about how you dance, but everybody cares about how could you speak about uh, business tips, it's, it's the better, yeah. Another question popped into my mind that uh, which is more common, a mediocre brand with a great marketing or a great brand with a mediocre marketing? And what should they do to in- increase their reach or to grow or to scale up from this phase? The reality is, is that it's very hard to build a, a brand. It's, it's really hard. And so I think that only... A few, you know, a handful, maybe only 50 to 60 to 70 brands in the world, in the history of brands, have been able to break out and create a brand that has, you know, 50 to 100 year plus legacy behind it. You know, we're talking the Nikes of the world, the Levi's of the world, you know, we're talking, we're talking the world's biggest brands, even even the likes of Walmart obviously has a global brand now. So even retail aggregators that are selling other people's stuff have been able to build very powerful brands. You know, we look at Home Depot and Lowe's and we look at some of the, the world's biggest brands. The reality is, is that they are actually in the minority. They, they are not in the majority. It, it feels like they're in the majority because we see them everywhere and we can't escape them. But the thing is, we're only seeing the brands that reached escape velocity. And so, you know, the reality is, is that 99% of brands out there are never going to become household names. So, but what they, what they do have to do and what I think is where these smaller brands are, are seeing success is to be relevant and to be having relevant conversations in the places 
where their customers are likely to be or where the, where the data shows that their customers already are. I think this focus on brand, yes, it's important. Absolutely. There's no question about it. If you can build a great brand, fantastic. It's going to give you all the power in the world. But even the great brands in the world that are virtually household names aren't necessarily profitable and aren't necessarily sustainable. We look at a lot of the biggest D2C brands in the world right now, like Allbirds, Eight Sleep, Casper, et cetera, you know, Allbirds might go out of business in the next 12 months. They're having major, major cash issues at the moment. They have a failed foray into physical retail. They've had a failed foray into catalog expansion into activewear products outside of their core shoe products. They're burning through cash at a great rate of knots. They are a cautionary tale of building a brand, but building it in an unsustainable way. So they took on a whole bunch of cash during COVID. They were treated almost like a tech company instead, from a valuation perspective, instead of like just another D2C manufacturing brand. And they're having real, real tr troubles growing into their valuation in a sustainable way. And there are real question marks about whether Allbirds, you know, you can, you can just Google Allbirds now and, and the latest news about them. There's every likelihood that they won't survive without additional funding over the next six months. There's, there's, there's question marks about whether they're going to to shut their doors. And so I think they are a prime example of a brand that has been built on the back of cheap money in an unsustainable way through paid acquisition channels, right? So to answer your question, I think building a brand in isolation of having a real strong marketing capability within your business and without a real strong capability to connect with your core consumer or potential buyers of your products. I think without doing that and without being able to gather some really solid zero and first party data to be able to do some real solid both remarketing as well as lookalike audience creation against that target demographic that is working well for your business, I think that you're really gonna struggle. So I would say brand important, but not to the exclusion of all else. Having really solid operations, having amazing customer service, being able to deliver on time and on your promises as a brand every single time consistently. I think, I think operations, tech and data and, and marketing capabilities will trump brand almost every single time until, you, until you're a behemoth, in which case, once you're a massive global brand, it's almost difficult to destroy your brand in the sense that you have to do lots of things wrong for you to destroy your company. You know, Nike would have to repeatedly make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strategic mistakes. Even then, Nike's not going to go away. They might shrink in size and relevance, but they'll never go away. And so, uh, you know, I know that was a long-winded way to answer your question, but I think that brand, although important, and you should always be trying to position your brand in the best light possible, I think there's lots more to building a sustainable business than just brand. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, how could they build a sustainable growth with these brands? Do they have to look for multiple channels? How could they make the most out of their decisions to grow and not overgrow themselves with cheap money? One of the things that, that we saw during COVID is that everybody, including Shopify themselves, for example, thought that the behavioral change during COVID was going to stick in terms of that we were going to go up and to the right. And what we've seen is that changing societal behavior and cultural behavior is hard. And even though for, for almost two years, people were forced to shop online for the bulk of their spending, the reality is, is that we're going back to the norms now. People are flood, flooding back to retail. In the UK, which from, from a Western country perspective, the UK has the highest penetration of e-commerce as a percentage of retail. They're only at about 30%. You know, that means that 70 plus percent of retail revenues are happening in physical spaces, in physical retail spaces, mostly in malls. And so the reality is, is that 
those of us that work in digital, we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, we're amazing. And hey, we were here. We were the safety net of the world during COVID. And we're creating these amazing customer experiences. And we're reducing friction. And we're giving people payment methods that they want. And we're, we're doing all these things. We're making shipping easier, faster, cheaper. We're, we're, doing, we're making returns frictionless. We're doing all these amazing things from a customer experiential perspective online. But yet, we're at a max of about 30% penetration of retail. We got a long way to go. And I think there's a, there's a tremendous amount of arrogance in the digital space. And, you know, look, I'll put up my hand and, I'll, and I'll, I'll put myself in that bucket occasionally where I get a little bit overconfident about where digital is going, at, you know, all the digital channels, you know, whether it be marketplaces, you know, D2C websites, B2B e-commerce, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for all of it because this is the space I work in. But I think there needs to be a heavy dose of realism for digital practitioners, which says, unless we can seamlessly support the physical retail experience as well, instead of having physical retail operating in a silo, until we recognize that and until we start actively participating in those discussions, we're going to always be seen as pariahs, by, by, especially by physical retail merchandisers, because they're going to go, you have no idea what we're going through out here in physical retail. And, and, and I do because I have those conversations routinely with, with retailers that have a heavy physical presence. I'm trying every single day to improve my empathy and understanding for the physical retail challenges that are out there in the world so that we can help solve them with digital capabilities and digital enablement and digital empowerment to where we can fuse and blend and merge the digital with the physical in ever more smart ways. That, I think, is going to be where the, spe- the digital specialists of the future the ones that really intimately, deeply understand physical retail, it's those that are going to stand out in the market. We haven't spoken before, but I wrote down a question that fits perfectly. What should brick and mortar stores do if they do not have an online presence yet? So does everyone need an online presence or not? And how could they fit their business needs to, the, to be online? And how, how could they back up offline retail with online presence? That's a very, very good question. And I think we've seen some resistance by some retailers to, to online. You know, we saw H&M hold out, for example. They're, they're probably one of the most famous holdouts for e-commerce. They were very, very, very late to the game uh, from an e-commerce perspective. It was really only COVID that really forced them to establish a strong online channel. You know, they resisted for many, many years. They relied 100% on their store chains. They dipped their toes in the water by starting to support click and collect from their physical stores. And that was kind of their first foray in, into online. Now, they, now they've gone and established regional websites almost everywhere in the world that they, that they have a stronghold now. They caved. Uh, Primark and a few others have, have resisted for a very, very long time doing online at all and said, we don't need online because our store footprint is so massive and so, so successful and our focus is on the retail experience. But I think it's, it's very, very difficult today as of 2023, especially post-COVID. I think it's increasingly difficult to justify not being an omni-channel player. So I, I would say if you have maybe one physical local retail store and you're operating just in the local community, maybe you don't need e-commerce. But I would say that the moment you've got, you know, two, three, four, five, 10, 20 retail stores, and you're starting to build that real physical footprint, I think it's increasingly difficult to justify not having e-commerce, uh, at least in a limited catalog way, at least in some limited way that facilitates click and collect, or at least in some physical you know, way that, that sh- uh, supports ship from store, at least sh- uh, showing store inventory online so that people know where to go. I, I think it's just, I think it's really hard to justify 
not having some form of an e-commerce presence just because of the ease of establishing that presence, the ease of running that presence um, nowadays from a technical perspective. And if you've got more than one retail store, you're going to be running an ERP. You're going to be running an order management system. You're going to be running some sort of WMS. You're going to be running some of these back. You're going to be running a, a point of sale system. So the reality is, is that you've got a lot of the core components that you already have to have from an inventory management perspective, uh, from a from a fulfillment perspective, you've got a lot of the core components anyway. So why wouldn't you just plug in that digital channel to go with it, and potentially even plug in uh, uh, the marketplace channels as well? And and nowadays the the ease of doing that for physical retailers is is such that um, yeah, I just think it's harder to justify now than ever before. I think there's probably some some edge cases that a physical retailer could justify not having e-commerce if they have such a immersive in-store experience that makes them such a differentiator that people are flocking to their physical stores, then maybe you could say, well, it's impossible for us to, to recreate this experience online. But I think that that is such an extreme edge case that I would say that for the most part, every brand needs to be omnichannel nowadays. You are also in B2B. As I know, and not just D2C. And as I think, B2B was always human to human. What could D2C learn from B2B in this human touch? I think having conversations with customers is something that D2C and B2C brands do really badly. What I mean by that is that D2C and B2C brands use MarTech and AdTech weaponry to have conversations at their customers, not with, at. So they, they speak at their customers. So it's all about how can we hyper-segment how can we create content that goes out to them via email and social? And how can we put paid and performance marketing down to that granular segmentation to where we're showing the perfect ad to the perfect customer at the perfect time, you know, where they're likely to convert within the next 30 days? I know very few D2C, B2C marketers that will pick up the phone and speak to a customer. Very few. It just doesn't happen. It, I know because I've worked with many D2C, B2C brands over the years, and it, they very rarely have operationalized the process of having conversations with customers. They don't, they don't have it. They, they, it's just not part of their operational mindset. And I think that that's something that B2C, D2C can learn from B2B because B2B has historically always had conversations. They know exactly who their customers are. They have, by definition, longstanding relationships with their customers. They're extending credit to those customers. They are catering to the every need and whim and feedback and saying, hey, we want you to source this stuff for us. Okay, yep, sure, we'll source this thing for you. Here, let's negotiate. Let's talk about pricing. Let's talk about uh, you know freight carriers and will you, will you ship with our carrier or will you ship with your carrier? You know, These kind of conversations are just totally everyday things that happen in, in the B2B space, right? You know, request for quotes, et cetera. Here's your custom price list. Here's your custom uh, minimum order quantity. Here's your, there's this constant trading ne negotiation that happens between field sales teams and B2B customers. This is just a normal everyday part of most B2B businesses. In D2C, those kind of conversations just never happen. And so I, I think that what D2C in particular can learn from B2B is having and operationalizing conversations with customers. Whether that be you pick out your top 10% of customers every month or something like that, have that automatically spat out, out of maybe it's your CDP or maybe it's your ERP or whatever it is. And you create that as a segment to start having conversations with to where if your customer service team is quiet, for example, because customer service teams go through these waves, right? They go through these waves of being super busy, dealing with live chats, dealing with phone calls, dealing with emails, dealing with returns, all this sort of stuff, but they have their downtimes too. 
So I think one of the ways in which D2C brands in particular can leverage those teams and their capabilities is to give them effectively a call list where they physically pick up the phone and they ring those customers and they say, hey, we see that you bought XYZ from us last, you know, this month. This is a new product to our catalog. We just wanted to get your, your thoughts, your feedback. You know, sure, you know, we've, we, I know we sent you an email asking you for a product review on our website, but we actually just wanted to have a conversation with you about this product. Are you enjoying the product? Was it what you expected? Was it the color you expected? Was it the size you expected? Did it do all the things you expected it to do? How did you even find out about us? How, what caused you to, to want to, to buy with us? And, you know, would you buy with us again? It's these these kinds of open two-way dialogue that customers are pleasantly surprised by because it almost never happens. I think you can make a massive impact with your DDC, BDC customers just by opening a human-to-human dialogue that is so rare in our industry that it's like a brand that does it as a unicorn, basically. This way of using customer service is, is a unique way that you've said. Maybe it will be a best practice, I don't know, in five years, we hope. How could a D2C brand balance between unique marketing strategies and best practices? I think it's about how do we differentiate ourselves in the market as I, I never really believed in this whole concept of best practices. Sure, there's some things that we know work. There's some things that we know don't work because other brands have experienced it. But what doesn't work for one brand might work super well for another brand because of the types of customers that they, that they have and their target demographic. I think you have to work out what's best practice for you as a brand, as opposed to, sure, I, I, I have no issue with, with looking at all ideas from outside your vertical, outside your space, outside your business model. I think we can definitely translate some of those successes that other brands see into something that can work for us. But I think there's a real danger in effectively outsourcing our strategic thinking and outsourcing the way in which we, we talk to our customers, talk with our customers, I think there's a real danger in outsourcing that to best practice, right? For example, one of the brands that I was working with a few years ago, they brought in a customer service expert into the business to review all their customer service processes, to look at the team structure, to see in which, uh, you know, to basically critique everything around customer services. And there, were, there, were, there definitely was some value. There was definitely a few gaps that were identified by somebody who totally focuses 100% of their time on customer service excellence and how to build customer service excellence into an organization operationally. But I think there's a real danger in that you have to balance that with, okay, what is our brand voice? What is our brand attitude? What is how, What do we want to be known for? You know, what, what is the type of discussions we want to be having with our customers? What type of feedback loop do we want to create with our customers? as opposed to just trying to find every operational efficiency we can squeeze out of our business. I think there's a I think there's a balance to be to be met there and that that is the risk of adopting anything that is labeled best practice. I think we have to find out what works best for us and our business and our customers. And I think that requires quite a lot of trial and error for most brands along the way and you know, once you think you've got it dialed, you know, your, your customers are going to change, their expectations are going to change over time as the market changes. As new competition comes to the market, as Amazon does new things, as the biggest brands in the world do new things. So the latest experience that customers have with these global brands is becomes their kind of new minimum, their new norm in terms of shipping speed and performance and all those other things that are the expectations are being created by the biggest brands in the world based on almost unlimited resources to deliver. So really your ability to deliver has to evolve over time too. There's no such thing as stasis, right? You're either going backwards or you're going forwards. And I think a lot of brands would just simply do well 
to just have more conversations with their customers so that they keep their finger on the pulse of their market as best as they can. People love to buy off humans. That's that, that's the reality. You know, sure, we might be buying through a web interface, but the more human it feels, the more impactful it feels, the more emotionally attached we become. And humans are not rational creatures. Probably in excess of 90% of the stuff we spend money on is completely irrational. It's an emotional decision. So if we can create desire instead of demand, desire is an emotional feeling, right? Demand is very clinical, even as a word, uh, as an industry. We use, the, we use the term demand generation. How can we go out and cre- create demand? I think, no, what we should be doing is trying to create desire, which is the human equivalent emotion of the technical demand term. So these are the types of conversations I think we need to be having every single day with our customers. Great. So I will I will be not a podcast host, uh, but I will be a, a desire generator yes. from now on. Yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly, Great. I mean, that, that's what I try to think, you know, with my content and with everything that I do, it's like, how can I create a desire to even consume my content? What can I do psychologically in the way that I speak and the, the way that I present myself and, and, and what I produce? How can I create a desire to actually interact with me as a human being? Could it be the difference between brands also? How could they harness this desire from this perspective? Like if a brand uh, has the potential to scale up, it's the desirability. Or for for another brand who is going well and just hit the ceiling. Yeah, and I think you make a very good point, which is you know going back to the Nike example again. When I think of Nike, the brand, when I imagine when Nike comes into my brain, I think of Shoe Dog, the book. I think of, you know, how the brand was founded. I think of Nike, just do it. I think of all the powerful ads that I saw as a kid growing up when I was, you know, watching TV and saw the Nike, just do it ads. And they never, ever spoke. I I can't remember a time where Nike ever spoke about the attributes of their product. Oh, it's got the best cushioning because of the Nike Air insole. It's got this, it's got that, it's got this, you know, it's got this type of, uh, you know, upper and it's got, you know, it's going to last longer because we use these materials or, you know, I, I don't remember them ever talking about the physical attributes of their product. I remember Nike talking about how their products make you feel or make you perform or show, they show every single time Nike does an ad, it's always an in-situ ad. Their products are in use. So it shows, you know, it shows people playing a basketball game or running a marathon or whatever it might be. You know, it's, it's everything that Nike does is very emotive in nature. Even their slogans, Nike, just do it. It's, it's, it's emotive in nature. It's not technical in nature. Even though their products are very technical, especially their performance products are highly, highly technical products. You know, like their running shoes, their air zooms, all the different, you know, types of shoes that they produce, they're very technical in nature and they target a very specific niche market for that that product. But Nike just doesn't talk in terms of, of technicals. Sure, when you go to buy the product, maybe it may be a product insert or whatever will have a breakout with a blow up of some of the technical parts, but from an advertising and marketing and branding and conversational perspective, they don't talk about technical shit. They talk about emotive shit. 
And I think we could all learn a lesson or two from that. If you had the time and energy to write a book or create a webinar about uh, D2C brands or e-commerce, what would be the title of it? Wow, that's a fantastic question. That's probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. It would be something along the lines of how to be create a technically and operationally superior brand whilst also retaining your humanity. It would be something along those lines. I don't know exactly. I'd have to massage that title because it sounds pretty shit, but it would be something along the lines of how can we create organizations that are at the top of their game operationally and technically, but retain our, our soul at the same time. And I, I see a lot of brands pursuing excellence, technical, operational, and even financial excellence or commercial excellence is probably a better way to put it, but they lose their soul in the process. They lose their heart in the process. They lose their ability to feel human and, and feel like they can have a connection with the customer in the process. And I think we don't have to have one or the other. I think we can actually have both. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's why all consultants, uh, going back to the roots, when you were starting this brand and why did you do that and what was the reason that you do it? Yeah, great. And last but not least, I want to give some seeds and nutrition for D2C brands. So I've got four quick questions and I want some quick answers from you. First is, what books or influencers would you recommend to read or follow as a D2C brand? Of course, Jason Greenwood, but uh, other than that? You know, I know everybody loves to hate on Gary Vaynerchuk, but I, just speaking for me personally, I wouldn't have started my content journey without his incessant hammering on me. And so I've got to give him credit. You know, do I agree with everything he says in, in his whole approach uh, to life? No, but you know, he is out there and he has been so consistent for so long in living his life publicly and transparently, you know, even with his divorce from his ex and, and everything else, you know, the reality is, is this guy has been putting himself out there to be shot down for, you know, well over a decade now. And I would say that, you know, do I consume much of his content now? No, I don't because I find it repetitive now because I've immersed myself in his content for so long and read his books, et cetera, et cetera, that, that it, it, it does become competitive. But I think if anybody can look at the motivation that he brings to the table to try to be having constant dialogues in public, you know, he was the one that kicked me in the ass, you know, through his content to say, well, you think you're a thought leader because I always sort of fancied myself as a bit of a thought leader, always thinking a little bit contrarian to, to what kind of everybody else was saying or thinking at the time. I always felt like I had a bit of a unique take because I'm not, I don't come from a, a hardcore marketing background. I come from more of a technical background. And so I approach things in a slightly different way with a different angle. But, you know, he challenged me. He said, you know, if you think you're a thought leader, we'll put your thoughts out there to be critiqued then. You can't consider yourself a thought leader if you're never putting your thoughts out there into the public. You know, if it's only in your head, how can you be a thought leader? So I really think that's amazing. I also think that people like Tony Robbins, and I, I consume a lot, or I historically have consumed a lot of mindset focused content, you know, even like Cam Haynes and Tom Bilyeu, and just a lot of people that focus on mindset heart, emotion, the humanity, you know, being able to manage who we are as a human being and how we can improve ourselves as a human being. I, I think that brands should also be looking to improve themselves like we as humans are constantly trying to improve ourselves. We want to be better citizens in the world. Or at least that's what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a better human in the world and I'm trying to send the ladder back down and I'm trying to help people. Sure, commercially, that will hopefully probably help me at some point. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I feel like this industry has treated me really well and it's given me an amazing lifestyle. And I feel like it's just my form of giving back to an industry that's that's allowed me to live the lifestyle I want to live. And I think brands need to do the same thing. I think they need to have a sense of obligation for getting better, not getting better as a business to purely improve the bottom line, but just to be better in the world. 
because I think that if the world is getting worse, then ultimately that's going to create a, a falling tide, right? And therefore, ultimately, commercially, that's going to impact us as well. So I think a rising tide floats all boats. So I think if we as an industry can get better and being better businesses, treating people better, looking after our local community better, and having initiatives that allow these conversations to happen in a safe place. I know this sounds woo-woo, and I know it sounds very tree-hugging and hippie, and I'm very practical. I'm a very practical guy, so I know this sounds a little bit off-base, but I just think that businesses have to start thinking about more than just just the bottom line. And I just like I think we as humans have to think about more than just how can we make more money. Look, I don't have the answers of exactly how every brand should, should go about doing that. But I just think taking a little bit more responsibility and ownership for our place in the world is an important start. Great set of thoughts. The second question is, what is the biggest mistake that DTC brands could make, the single biggest one? DTC brands who aren't thinking about distribution as an, a key pillar of their success are going are gonna to struggle, especially over the next few years, especially with the contracting market. And, and when I say that, I mean, the D2C brands that aren't thinking about establishing a B2B channel are the ones that are going to seriously struggle. The ones that are so uh, monolithically focused and myopically focused on, on the D2C channels that they operate in, whether it's physical, online, both, you know, marketplaces, whatever. I think if they're not looking at establishing a B2B route to market in tandem and in parallel with their D2C channel to de-risk the D2C channel, especially with rising costs on the D2C channel in terms of CAC, I think they're missing a massive opportunity. So the brands that I think, the D2C brands that I think are do awesomely over the next couple of years are the ones that establish a tandem B2B channel and say, grow it to say 25% of revenues over the next 24 months, because that's going to significantly de-risk their dependency on the DTC channel. Because it's impossible for a DTC brand, it's impossible for them to be everywhere their customers are. There's other retailers that are going to be where their customers are that they are that they can't be. And so by establishing a wholesale channel, it's just going to it's just going to dramatically increase their reach. And it is related in somehow. Could you tell me your quick growth tip related to D2C? If they listen to this podcast, the next day they could apply that tip. A lot of these D2C brands, they've got significant digital capabilities in-house already because they oftentimes have very strong online brands. Because of that, it is relatively easy for them to establish a B2B channel at least digitally, at least an e-commerce B2B channel. Uh, and it, would, it, would, it wouldn't take them a huge amount of effort to establish that channel. And so I think that that's something that every D2C brand should be thinking about tomorrow if they're not already. Great. And, and the last question is, what tools would you use as a DTC brand for growth? Look, I'm not a digital marketer. You know, I don't specialize in digital marketing. I don't help brands manage campaigns or really D2C go-to-market strategy. It's, it's not my core competency. But what I would say is that a lot of D2C brands, they neglect operational excellence and customer service excellence in favor of marketing excellence, right? And I think they're totally intertwined because if the, if the fulfillment experience, if the shopping experience, if the returns experience, if the you know, customer service experience, both pre, during, and post-sale is not top shelf, I, I think that you know, you can be the best marketers in the world, but if you are not operationally near perfect, which is kind of table stakes nowadays, then you are going to do so much brand damage and experiential damage that you're going to constantly be trying to be trying to fill a leaky bucket. You're going to be you're going to have to focus on acquisition at all costs because you're going to be leaking so many customers out the bottom end. They're never going to shop with you again. That if you focused on operational and technical excellence so that the customer experience is just 
Mm. Chef's kiss all the way from the time of where they start considering shopping with you all the way to the time when they might have to return something to you. I think if that is just an amazing standout experience all the way to the unboxing experience and the first touch and feel of your products, I think that will do more in terms of viral marketing. You, you, will, you will mobilize an army of fans that will tell their friends about you that will decrease your dependence on customer acquisition radically. And so that would be my, my only piece of advice is, is not so much focus on marketing, but, but focus on operational and service excellence. Jason, thanks for accepting my call and giving this tremendous amount of value in this podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and you asked some amazing questions that I've never been asked before. So well done. Thanks. And don't forget to try these tips today. For more seeds and nutrition, stay tuned for the next episode.